Father God, again, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity that you have given to us in this country where we are still free to assemble together to study your word, to fellowship with, with sisters in Christ, open your word to get to know you better. Father, I just pray that you would sanctify your people with thy truth. Your word is truth. And Lord, um, just bless this study as we launch into it this morning of your most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And as we look at it, Father, I just pray that we will present our bodies to you as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto you, which is merely our reasonable service. Take us, mold us, make us, prove us, conform us into thy image. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. In the midst of the Lord Jesus' public ministry of approximately three and a half years, he chose a prominent land rise, not really a mountain, and we'll talk about that, but a prominent land rise. He sat down, he opened his mouth, and he began to teach. The depths of what he taught is found in what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, and those depths can never really be completely plumbed. We will spend a year on them and yet we will never get to the bottom of how deep this sermon is. It is the most penetrating section of the entire Bible. The words of the Lord in this sermon are like x-rays of our soul. They expose ourselves to ourselves. We will ask ourselves, are we truly kingdom citizens? In other words, are we truly saved? And I hope that is an examination each and every one of us will really Give to ourselves. Make sure that you know that you truly are born again. Um, and if so, then what is the degree of our commitment? How authentic are we? How authentic is our life? How much above the level of mediocrity are we walking the Christian walk? There is no other section of God's holy word which if we are willing to let the Spirit work, can cause us to so intensely face ourselves and our motives. I've already, just as I've been going through what I've been going through this little bit, I have been searching myself to find out, you know, it's sometimes hard to, to understand your own motives for why you're doing things. And we examine not only our motives, but our attitudes and our thoughts and, of course, our actions. And the process can be rather painful. I'm warning you ahead of time. This can be very painful, but it can also prove to be wondrously liberating, setting us free from all sorts of issues that perhaps have held us back from being all that we can be for Christ and from receiving the blessings that he wants to give us. Now, it is interesting to see a contrast between the last message of the Old Testament. If you'll flip just a few pages back to the left and look at the last message that came from Malachi. It's in Malachi 4.6. You will see there, this is the last word of the Old Testament, um, that uh, Malachi was predicting the coming of Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he spoke of a curse. Actually, what is the last word of the Old Testament, ladies? Curse. The last word of the Old Testament is curse. It says, and he, and of course he's speaking of Elijah, 
shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Of course, the, you know, we, John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this prophecy. So the Old Testament's last message is that of a warning regarding a curse. Now, in contrast, the New Testament's first message from the Lord begins with the promise of a blessing. Now, what is the first book in the New Testament? Matthew, all right? It's the first book in the New Testament. And even though chronologically, as we have been looking at the Lord's life chronologically, step by step, even though chronologically the Lord Jesus had already spoken an unrecorded sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth when he read from Isaiah, but we don't know what that sermon was, and also he has spoken the sermon in John chapter 5, which we uh, entitled the Sermon on the Judgment and Resurrection Power of the Son. Yet the fact still remains that the first sermon found positionally in the New Testament is that of the Sermon on the Mount. And so how does it begin? It begins the Lord's first sermon, um, I hate to say chronologically, but positionally in the New Testament begins with bless, the word blessed. Actually, blessed is repeated uh, nine times. And so we have a contrast. The last word of the Old Testament is the word curse, and the first word from the first positional sermon, the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament found in Matthew 5, 2, is the word blessed. You see, the Old Testament characterized by the law given on Mount Sinai is a book of warning judgment and cursing for all those who could not, you know, cannot perfectly keep the law, which is everybody. The Old Testament demonstrates to man his need of salvation. Now, the New Testament begins with the coming of the Savior and his message the message of the Savior, Savior is a message which offers blessing. Man in Jesus Christ can share God's very nature, which is characterized by true righteousness. And the consequence of having true righteousness or God's nature is blessedness, blessing. So in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord begins with his offer of blessedness. The Lord Jesus is referred to in the New Testament as both the second and the last Adam. After him, there will come no further king. Adam was the first king. He was a king because he was given dominion over the entire world. But that first king, that first monarch, fell and he brought a curse to the whole world. Jesus, who is not only the second Adam, but the last Adam, came to earth to reverse that awful curse of the first king. The Sermon on the Mount, therefore, is the great manifesto of the great king who offers blessing instead of cursing to those who are willing to come into his kingdom by way of him. We're going to be looking at the setting of the sermon as we discuss when it was written, uh, to whom it was addressed, where it was written, or not written, spoken, uh, what it is, and to whom it applies. And then we'll talk about the purpose of the sermon and then some principles in the sermon as we sort of give an overall 
uh, review of what is in there. When? So let's begin with the question when. Well, actually, let's begin by, I debated about this. I don't know whether I should try to read it or what do you think? It takes about 10 minutes to read it. I can read fast, but uh, maybe I could just highlight some things. But let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I have a sort of a short lesson, so I think maybe we could, because I hate to be talking about something that you haven't, that we haven't first read. All right, I'm going to read it, and I'll read it fast, okay? Matthew 5, 1. And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted the prophets which were, so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savior, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on an hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoso shall ever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Ye have heard that it was said of them by, by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever look on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. 
And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. <laughs> he doesn't know about it. Well. <laughs> but let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain or two. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans do? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Chapter 6. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which is in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Everybody read with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites, as of a, a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head, and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which is in secret shall openly reward thee, reward thee openly. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on it. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe ye, you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Chapter 7. Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what manner ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? But considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again, and rend you. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? 
If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And I will, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whatsoever heareth, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Verse 28, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Wow. Wow. I don't know. I'm glad I read that because it just impacted me. Just the words alone, we could close up and go home and just meditate on it. When did the Lord preach this sermon? Well, according to Dr. A.T. Robertson's Harmony of the Gospels, um, which is what I am using for our chronological study through the four Gospels, um, it followed the Sermon on the Mount, followed the Lord's choosing of the twelve apostles, which is what, of course, we did look at last week. So he is approximately 18 to 20 months away from his crucifixion. So he was really in his middle year. You know, his public ministry was three and a half years long, and we've divided those three and a half years into three basic years. One was the year of um, obscurity. We are now in the year of open popularity, which of course is obvious by the many crowds which follow him everywhere he went. So this is sometime in his middle year, his year of open popularity. To whom was it addressed? Well, when the Lord Jesus had chosen his 12 apostles, he had selected them, remember, 
from among a much larger group of disciples. Disciples meaning learners. There were many disciples following him. There had also been a great crowd of, of people from all over, great multitudes of people from both Galilee and Judea and many of the surrounding Gentile provinces as well. And we saw that when we looked at Mark chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, and we had discussed in our last lesson how the Lord's ministry would now begin to focus on his internship training of his 12 apostles who would carry on the gospel message after his departure back to heaven. Now, of course, he would still be followed by the crowds, which is what happens when, if you look at, for example, Matthew 4, verses 23 to 25. This is his second great Galilean preaching tour, and he's followed again all over the place by great multitudes of people. So he'd still be followed by the, the crowds, and he would still teach them. But his primary emphasis is going to be on his 12, and this is really evidence to us by what Matthew and Luke tell us in their accounts of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Matthew 5.1, for example. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, he sat down to teach. You know, that was the custom in those days. They would sit down to teach. And so it says, When he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, does that not sound... It sounds like the multitude was at the bottom of the mountain and only the disciples were up there with him being taught the truths of the sermon. That's what that sounds like. The mountain, however, was really a, uh, a large hill. Its tradition says it's Carnhattan. It's north of the Sea of Galilee. I have been there and it's really not like you picture a mountain at all. It's sort of a plateau up on a, on a plain. But it, it's higher elevation, so when you're standing up there, you can picture the multitude down sort of below and the disciples up close to Jesus. But it would be a, a natural place to speak because the multitude down there could also hear. Um, and it's, oh, it's a gorgeous spot. It's a beautiful spot. I remember standing there and just, uh, we read the Sermon on the Mount when we were up there. And, uh, of course, you just, you've got goosebumps all over and tears running down your cheeks. But uh, you can see the Sea of Galilee from there. It's northwest of Capernaum. But so it's not, don't get the idea of, you know, like uh, Moses going up to Mount Sinai, where if the multitude was at the bottom of that mountain, they couldn't hear what was going on at all. It's, uh, it's just really a, a, a crest, the top of a hill. And this makes sense when we consider what Matthew said at the end of the sermon. You remember what I read in Matthew 7:28? Just got through reading it. It says, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. That sounds like they heard it, didn't they? So the people were astonished, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So obviously... The people, the multitudes, also heard the Lord teach as well as his disciples. And that fits in also with what Luke states at the conclusion of his account of the sermon. Now, we didn't read his account, but he says this. Now, when he, Jesus, had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people. That's in Luke 7, 1. Yet, having said all that, it does appear that his specific audience was his disciples because Luke in prologuing his account of the sermon says of Jesus 
It says this. This is Luke 6.20, if you want to keep looking at what I'm talking about here. It says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So he was speaking specifically to his uh, disciples, but the crowd down below heard what he said. Either that or the only other scenario you can have is that he taught his disciples first, and then somewhere along the line the multitude came up and joined them. But I, I think that he taught his disciples close by and was looking at them, but the crowd down below was hearing all of this at the same time. All right, now let's, um, I've already talked about where, so let's go to what. All right, on our outline, what is the sermon? Oops, that's not my outline. The Sermon on the Mount is the title, obviously, given to the collection of sayings recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that we just read, and also in Luke 6 verses 19 to 49, and in your homework you will see that there are other parts of the Sermon on the Mount which are scattered in different places in Luke. He, he takes it, and, and for divine reasons, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to scatter the sermon and fit it in in different locations. So he would give part of it here, part of it there. But the bulk of Luke's Sermon on the Mount is found in chapter 6, verses 19 to 49. But, of course, we're going to be mostly studying Matthew's account because there it's all together, and it is much more complete than what we find over in Luke. The Sermon on the Mount is the best known and the most widely studied discourse in the world, in all of human history. Although it can be read in about ten minutes, I don't know how long that took because I didn't time it, but they say you can read it in ten minutes. Yet it has been the subject of literally thousands of articles and books. In fact, there have been so many articles and books and uh, pieces of literature written about the Sermon on the Mount that they actually have reference books that do nothing but survey all the material and articles and books on the sermon so that you can go to the reference books and look up what you want to study or what particular aspect of the sermon. So don't think we're ever going to exhaust the study of the Sermon on the Mount in even just one year because it is, you can't, you just can't ever plumb the depths of it, as I said in the introduction. It is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever preached. It's the charter for the citizens of the kingdom of God, and it is the, the standard of daily righteousness which the king himself set forth for all of those who by faith in him enter into his kingdom. That is what it is. To whom is it applied? All right, now, here's where you have to put your thinking caps on for a little bit. There are numerous conflicting views as to whom the sermon's message was intended. Now, we've already discussed already to whom it was addressed you know, the disciples and also the, the multitude down there. But there is great disagreement among theologians as to whom it applies. The theme of the sermon is the nature of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and the kind of life that those who desire to be kingdom citizens should have. However, because the standards of righteousness which are set forth by the Lord in this sermon are so incredibly high. Did you get that? Did you pick up on that as we read through it? I mean, just think of this one verse. Be ye perfect <laughs> as your Father in heaven is perfect. Those are pretty high standards. 
So because they're so incredibly high, many attempts have been offered to explain why it is not to be taken seriously today by God's people. Uh, now, one view is uh, that of the hyper-dispensationalist. That may be a new term to you, but the hyper-dispensationalist. Oh, there, there's where it is in Luke's account, all right? Just for the record, it's in Luke 6, 19 to 49, and in chapter 12 in two locations, and also you find a little bit of it in 16, 17. All right, the hyper-dispensationalist, for example say that the sermon has nothing to do with Christians of the church age. That's you and I. The church age began on the day of Pentecost. It will end at the time of the rapture. They say that the Lord presented it solely in connection with his offer of, of his kingdom. However, because Israel rejected him as her king, she forfeited the kingdom. And so the sermon remains irrelevant for those who are living in this present age, this present dispensation. In other words, you and I, Christians of the church age. They say that it will not be until the return of Christ to establish his literal 1,000-year kingdom on earth when he will establish the sermon's kind of righteousness on earth that the words of this great sermon will then again be introduced to the people and applicable. In other words, the hyper-dispensationalist teaches that the Sermon on the Mount is meant only for kingdom-age citizens of the literal kingdom, you know, the thousand-year kingdom on earth, that it will only be applicable for them and not for you and I, not for church-age saints. Now, some of you have probably heard this growing up. Some of you have probably, maybe you didn't even realize it, but you have probably heard it and been maybe even been taught it. I know that the very first edition of the Schofield Reference Bible, for example, contained this footnote. Here's what it said. The Sermon on the Mount, in its primary application, gives neither the privilege nor the duty of the church. In other words, that is what I'm talking about. That is a hyper-dispensationalist view of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, according to this teaching, then, we would not really need to read, much less to study, the Sermon on the Mount. And I have come across well-known Bible teachers who, one of them in particular, scolded me for teaching the Sermon on the Mount and said that I was wasting my time and that I should not teach the Sermon on the Mount. I should get on to something else. The fact is, however... And if I told you who I was, you'd be, he was, you'd be flabbergasted. The fact is, however, that the Sermon on the Mount does apply to us. It is precisely a world such as ours, a world which is filled with injustice and evil, that the Sermon has in mind. It has our world in mind, not the kingdom, the millennial kingdom where Jesus Christ will be reigning, why would believers in the kingdom need to be told that they are blessed if they are persecuted and reviled for his name's sake? There won't be any persecution, praise the Lord, in the millennial kingdom. The sermon mentions such things as hunger and worry and anger and murder and adultery and divorce and tears and enemies and false teachers, all of which would not be, will not be part of the literal kingdom on earth when Jesus Christ is reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords. Also, what about the prayer that we all read together, known as the Lord's Prayer, where it says, Thy kingdom come. 
Why would, why would we be told to, uh, why would the Lord be teaching kingdom citizens to pray the kingdom come when they're there and the kingdom has come? You see what I'm talking about? If the sermon is not for us, then, then uh, we are not correct either when you and I say we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Because that's not for us. That's for the kingdom citizens. It also needs to be mentioned, and this is the most powerful argument against this view, that there is not a single teaching found in the Sermon on the Mount which is not repeated in the New Testament epistles somewhere. And we all know, every theologian agrees, that the New Testament epistles are intended for the church. So every teaching in the Sermon on the Mount can be also found in some form or fashion, the principle behind it in the New Testament. So the conclusion that I have, and I hope you do too, is that yes, this is indeed worth our time studying, and it is applicable for us. Although the literal 1,000-year kingdom on, of God on earth was temporarily postponed because Israel j- did reject Christ, nonetheless, it is also true that the kingdom of God exists right today in where? In the hearts of those who have accepted the king. It may not be a literal physical king kingdom with Christ reigning on earth, but there, the kingdom of heaven is right now also in heaven, but it is also in all of us who have accepted the king. And you can find Jesus' own words in Luke 17, 21, where he said, the kingdom of God is within you. Therefore, all genuine believers, if you have been born again and accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a kingdom citizen. So this sermon is for us. Now, another popular view concerning the Sermon on the Mount, which really flourished at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, last century, is that which is held by the social gospel movement. They claim, the proponents of that movement claim that the sermon is a charter for world peace. They say that uh, the sermon is a kind of a blueprint for the reorganization of society, and it's a roadmap to social progress. They present the sermon as a code of ethics by which individuals and nations should conform if this world ever hopes to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. In other words, they are saying that mankind, by obeying the sermon, can usher in the kingdom of heaven on earth. And one group even goes as far to say that the sermon is the only part of the New Testament that really matters. That's really a contrast from the hyper-dispensationalists, isn't it? It's the only part that matters. They say it's God's plan of salvation, some of them. I mean, not all of the social gospel people say that, but some of them say that it's God's plan of salvation and that those who go to heaven, plan to go to heaven, must obey the Sermon on the Mount. Now, these theological liberals of the social gospel movement see the Sermon on the Mount as a divine address, therefore, to the entire world. As a, it's a call for human goodness is what it is, they say, um, and, and human self-sacrifice and the humane treatment of each, uh, of each man by every other man. You know, they center on the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this kind of liberalism, unfortunately, is really an attempt to replace the true gospel message. You know, they want to avoid the blood and the cross and the death of Christ. So they just say, you know, we'll bring the kingdom of, of heaven to earth ourselves if we can just do what the Sermon on the Mount says. 
And so what they're doing is they're replacing the true gospel with this gospel, you know, this, this false gospel, a gospel which really centralizes on man and what he can do to bring in, in the kingdom. You know, it centralizes on human pro progress. That which the proponents of the social gospel and other secularized forms or concepts of the gospel, the true gospel, what they have failed to take into consideration, however, is that no man, no man can ever live the Sermon on the Mount in and of himself. I mean, just go ahead and try it. <laughs> Any of you guys out there who don't have the Holy Spirit, we who have the Holy Spirit even can't really do it. <laughs> No man can even get past the first beatitude. Look at Matthew 5, 3, where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're going to talk about that next week. No man can even get past poverty of spirit in and of himself. Unregenerate man could never even keep the Old Testament standards of holiness, which were established by the law. So how could he even begin to conceive that he could keep the even higher standards of righteousness, which are established by the Lord Jesus Christ, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Did you notice the standards are even higher? He said, you know, you have heard it told that, uh, that you shouldn't murder. That's old, stand, old Testament standard, right? Thou shalt not murder. But what did he say? But I say unto you, you can't even be angry at your brother. He said, um, you have heard it said that you, you, know, you shouldn't commit adultery. But I say unto you that whoever lusteth after a woman, where? In his heart has already committed adultery. So the Sermon on the Mount has an even higher standard of righteousness and holiness than the Old Testament. And no man could ever keep the Old Testament. So what makes them think that they can keep the Sermon on the Mount? The sermon elevates the law to an even higher level of spirituality. So no unsaved man could ever possibly live up to the standards that God sets forth in the sermon without the new birth and without the resulting indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. However... It is hoped that any unsaved person who would read the Sermon on the Mount might be convicted of his or her sin, you know, and see how, fall, how far how they fall, you know, short of fulfilling the divine standards of holiness that are set forth in it. You know, the sermon itself does not contain the, true, the gospel message. It doesn't say that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, does it? I mean, so a person reading the Sermon on the Mount doesn't, doesn't have the gospel. So it would be hard for them to get saved unless they have the rest of the, the scripture, or at least something like Romans, um, um, John 3.16, you know, or, or at least they find out who Jesus is. But it's hoped that anybody reading the sermon, if that's all they had was the Sermon on the Mount, that they would be convicted, I can't meet this, and then that they would want to know the one who spoke this and want to know more about him, and then that they would be at least receptive to the gospel. But if all a person ever had was a Sermon on the Mount they had never heard before that Jesus died for their sins, they could not really be, just be saved by what's in the Sermon on the Mount. Also, uh, back to refuting the social gospel, it, it is also incorrect to believe as the proponents of this false gospel teach, that human goodness will eventually bring in the kingdom of God to earth. That is wrong to say that, you know, if men just obey the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, that, we'll bring, that they will bring in the kingdom. That is contrary to what the scripture teaches. The Bible clearly states that the latter days will see increased wickedness 
and uh, apostasy, and it will only be the literal return of the Lord Jesus Christ himself that will then uh, result in the establishment of his kingdom here on earth. Okay, let's go to the purpose of the sermon. Purpose of the sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest discourse of the Lord Jesus recorded in all of the scripture, and in it we find that he elaborated on his shortest message. So his longest message, the sermon, elaborated on his shortest message, which was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his shortest message. In the sermon, he taught what genuine repentance is really all about. It's about poverty of spirit. It's about mournfulness over our sin nature. It's about meekness, etc. So he taught what genuine repentance really is, and he taught what its fruits are. What are the fruits of genuine repentance? Well, we will hunger and thirst after righteousness. We will have pure hearts. We will be peacemakers. We will be able to have joy even if we are persecuted, etc., One of the Lord's intentions in the sermon was to clear the true meaning of the law and the rest of the Old Testament teaching, which had been so badly corrupted and twisted and misinterpreted by the the spiritual leaders of Israel over the passing centuries. Everything had been viewed as merely external and physical. That's what we've seen already, and we're going to see more of that, how the the rabbis had, had made everything just a matter of the external. But Jesus in the sermon teaches over and over again that it's the internal. It's the, the moral that, that really matters. It's, it's the heart that matters. His concern is and always has been for what men are on the inside. Because what they are internally is going to determine what they do externally. The sermon on the Mount applies to our lives today. It it really is where the rubber meets the road. It describes the kind of righteous, godly character that we should have as believers in this world. So much of his focus in the sermon is on having righteous attitudes. You know, so much of life is is just determined by our attitudes. 90% or maybe even 99%. It's our attitude. So he talks about our attitudes toward God. He talks about our attitude toward sin. He talks about our attitudes toward our fellow man. He talks about our attitudes toward the world, toward our enemies, toward circumstances, and, of course, toward our own selves. He emphasized four main essentials for true inner happiness or blessedness. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to begin the road to happiness. How many of you want to be happy? How many of you want to be blessed? I think that's the main goal of everybody. So we're going to begin the road to happiness next week. And he emphasizes how we can have true inner blessedness. And that's by having faith in God, by being obedient to God, by having love toward others, and being honest with ourselves. Simple. Not really, but... (laughs) You know, life back then in first century Israel, life was not easy for the people. And, and there was really not much hope that their circumstances would change. Like today, many of the people in, in Christ's day thought that their happiness could come or would come if just the external circumstances could be changed. You know, like if they weren't being oppressed by the Romans or if they could have a change of rulership, you know, for, instead of being under the Herods. 
or if they could be healed of some affliction or disease, or if they could have more money or a better position or a bigger home or a better spouse or, or be more popular or enjoy more pleasure. But the Lord Jesus Christ described happiness or blessedness in terms which are just the opposite of what the people back then would expect and what people in the world today would have expected. He told them that what they needed was not so much a change in their circumstances as a change in their relationship to God and in their attitudes and in their outlook on life. He described to them the inner attitudes which are necessary to experience the blessedness of God. This is what we're going to be looking at in the road to happiness, by the way, if you want to look at the outline that you have at the beginning of your little um, packages there. We're um, talking about the road to happiness, part one. His emphasis is going to always be on the condition of the heart and not the outward circumstances. Even going so far as to say that we can rejoice when men revile us or speak evil against us or, or persecute us and attack us for righteousness' sake. He says that we can rejoice in that because uh, it's a privilege to suffer for him, for righteousness' sake. He taught in the sermon that the Christian should always have eternal, value, uh, eternal um, values in view. You know, our focus should always be set on eternity, set our affection on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Then in the second part of the outline where it says responsibility to the world, he's going to teach Christians that they are to be the salt of the earth and the, and the light of the world. And um, that we should always have eternal values at the forefront of, forefront of all that we do. And when we do that, that will not make us very popular with the world because salt stings. Have you ever put salt on a wound? It stings. It's ouch. Salt stings and light exposes sin. And when people get stung and when their sin gets exposed, what do they do? They either attack or they insult or they avoid or they re uh, reject. It's something that believers, Jesus said, should just expect. Expect it. If you're going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, which we should be if you're truly a kingdom citizen, you're going to uh, be persecuted. However, as a further testimony for him and with a righteous attitude regardless of circumstances, we must love those who harm us and insult us and reject us. We must love them. We must do good for them. We must even pray for them and go the second mile for them and turn the other cheek to them and not sue them, you know, not take them to court, etc. Hatred will only breed more hatred. Now, of course, this cannot be accomplished in our own strength, but it can be done through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Two principles stand out in the sermon regarding our relationship with others. We should treat others as we would want to be treated ourselves, and we must imitate our Father in heaven by being merciful, loving, kind, patient, forgiving, and loving. The important thing is not that we might be vindicated before our enemies. The important thing is that we become more and more like who? Like Christ. Far greater than, than riches or anything else that this world can offer. Our greatest reward is to be Christ-like. All things that the world will, can give us will one day pass away. But character 
will endure for all of eternity. That's what it's all about, is building up our character, conforming us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we have trials and testings and persecutions and all sorts of things in our lives, because the Lord is trying to mold us into his son's character. And that character will endure for eternity. So keep that always in perspective. The Lord Jesus, in teaching how righteousness works in daily life, then took, and this is in part four, reinterpretations of the law. He took six important Old Testament laws, and he reinterpreted them for the people in light of the, of the new life that he came to give them. Without altering God's standards, because he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, without destroying or altering God's standards, he made a fundamental change in that he dealt with the intents of the heart and not simply the external action. True sin, he taught, is where? True sin is in the heart. So people who claim that they try to live or that they... Have you ever heard somebody say, I live by the Sermon on the Mount? People who claim that they live by the Sermon on the Mount probably do not realize that it is far harder for them to keep the Sermon on the Mount than it would be for them to keep the Ten Commandments. And who has ever been able to keep the Ten Commandments? Who has never been able to um, not covet? Who has never not lied? I mean, even an exaggeration of the truth is a lie in God's eyes. Uh, Who has never had an idol in their life? An idol is anything that becomes between you and I. So if they say they live by the Sermon on the Mount and that they think that's going to get them to heaven, wrong. (laughs) Point that out to them and read them the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord also taught, and this is in part five of our outline, Rejection of Pharisaic Religionism. He taught about the kingdom citizen's righteous relationship to God in worship. For example, he will tell us about uh, in our giving He calls it alms, but it's in our giving, in our praying, and in our fasting. And he warns repeatedly about the danger of hypocrisy, which is the sin of using religion to cover up sin. He talked about doing things for the praise of God and not doing them for the applause and the praise of men. And he encouraged us to examine ourselves and to test ourselves to see whether, this is where it really gets convicting, whether we are sincere and honest in our worship and in our service for the Lord and in our Christian commitment. He also taught about our relationship to material things. He taught that a right attitude toward wealth is a mark of true spirituality. He talked about, and this takes us into part six, rules for the redeemed. He talked about how the treasures of earth, in the treasure rule that we'll be looking at, how the treasures of earth can be rightly invested to be used for God. You know, we can lay up our treasures where? Where they're really going to count and make an investment. In heaven, we are to use all that we have, not just our treasures, but we're used to use our talents and our time. For the glory of God. He also taught, and this will be a convicting message when we talked about, talk about the worry rule. He taught us, uh, he teaches us to rest in God and not to be anxious. Worry is a sin. He says it's living like the heathens. And, and we should just rest in the Lord, trust in the Lord, know that he will take care of us. Worry merely robs us of our effectiveness today, which means that we, we will be 
even less effective tomorrow. Don't let the worries of tomorrow rob you of the blessings of today. There's enough evil just in today. Don't worry about tomorrow. All right, then in in, um, verse 7, but in section 7, we'll be talking about righteousness that is real. By the way, the the five rules for the redeemed we will be looking at in part 6 are the treasure rule, the worry rule, the criticism rule, the prayer rule, and the golden rule. Okay, then we'll get into part 7, righteousness that is real. The Lord Jesus talked in the sermon about judgment. <clears throat> and, judge, and judgment not only of ourselves, judgment of others, when we go around judging others. And, of course, he also talks about God's judgment of us. He taught that we reap what we sow, and we reap to the proportion that we sow. If we live to give, then we receive. But if we live only to get, we will ultimately lose. He taught how eternally important it is to choose the narrow way which leads to life and to build our to build our lives upon the solid rock foundation of his word so that we need never fear the storms of life or the eternal sorrow of hearing one day those horrible words from the Lord himself I never knew you depart from me when Jesus spoke his fame and that's our review okay we're through with the review When the Lord spoke his famous sermon on the mount, the prominent message of the the various religious sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Israel were as follows. And this is in your notes, and I thought this was worth putting on the tape. This This was the message that the people were hearing from their religious rulers, in very succinctly stated. What were the Pharisees saying? They were saying, go back. They were saying, go back to the law, go back to the law, go back to the traditions. That's what true religion is all about. Then there were the Sadducees. What did they say? They said, go ahead, go ahead, live it up right now. You know, get all the gusto you can, live it up now, because reaping your reward in this life is what it's all about. There is no afterlife. There is no resurrection. So reaping your reward now is true religion. And then there were the Essenes. Remember them? They said, uh, go away. The world is corrupt. It's terrible. Things aren't like they should be. So separate yourselves from corrupt society. And they were the ones who went to the caves of Qumran and and hid themselves in those caves and totally separated themselves. So they say, go away. Separating yourselves from that which is corrupt, that is how you find true religion. And then, of course, we had the zealots, and they said, go against, go against, fight them, fight fight for your beliefs. We don't like these Herods, so let's kill them. We don't like the Romans, let's kill them. Go against everything, and that then you will, then you will find true religion. But in the Sermon on the Mount, The Lord Jesus was teaching Israel what true religion and true righteousness really are. To the Pharisees and to all modern-day traditionalists, because we do have modern-day Pharisees. They're not called Pharisees, but they have the same principles. To them, he said, in effect, true religion or true righteousness, I like that word better, is internal. It's not external. To the Sadducees and all the modern-day liberals, he said, lay up treasures in heaven, not here. 
To the Essenes, he said, an all-modern-day separatist, he said, Jesus uh, uh, said, true spirituality is having is a matter of having a separated heart, not a separated body. You know, we're not to hide our, hide our light under a bushel and go and just totally remove ourselves from society. We're to be the light of the world. It's a matter of having a separated heart, not a separated body. And to the zealots and all modern-day political activists, he said true righteousness and true spirituality is a matter of worship and inner peace, not anger and turmoil and being against everything. It's not a matter of political revolution. The Lord made it clear that man must not only do right, but man must be right. The change in heart and attitude has to come from where? From within. And such change is not possible without the new birth. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross in order that man might be able to have his sins forgiven and receive eternal life in the new birth. By way of the indwelling presence and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, man would be able to live by the righteous standards that are set forth in his famous teaching here. Since he died so that we might be equipped to have Sermon on the Mount righteous, righteousness, and that's why he died, so we can have his righteousness imputed unto us and then also have our own righteousness so that we are able to fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. It is possible. It's very difficult, but it is possible. So since he died so that we can have this wonderful opportunity to go down the road to true happiness, the very least that you and I, the redeemed, can do is study what he teaches. And nowhere are his righteous standards of living stated as concisely and as clearly as in this powerful Sermon on the Mount. So the least we can do is study it, and that's what, Lord willing, we're going to be doing throughout the remainder of this year, into next year, and probably into the fall, until we finish it. But I promise you, it will be worth it. It will be painful, but it will be worth it all when we're finished. Let's pray. Father, it should really be a great delight for us as Christians to study this wonderful sermon because in it you give the divine pattern to us for true happiness and successful living. You have set forth for us the standards and and the motivations and the objectives which will show us the way of joy and peace and inner contentment. And those things alone, Father, I know should be motivation for anyone to really want to study this book. It will x-ray our souls and we will see ourselves as we truly are. And I pray, Lord, we will, we will have the commitment and the desire and the, and the power of the Spirit to change so that we will be more conformed into the image and character of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.